Welcome to the Humans and Earth podcast. We bring you inspiration and practical resources for healing our planet and ourselves. It is time for soulful contributions that regenerate life on Earth. I'm Helen Claire Harmon, a thought leader and teacher who believes we're ready to renew Earth and heal ourselves in the process. Welcome to today's episode. I'm so glad you joined me in caring about regeneration for people and planet. If you enjoy the Humans and Earth podcast, please give us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast player, and please subscribe through your favorite podcast player and also to our newsletter at humansandearth.com. I also invite you to follow our work on Instagram at school humans earth that's school humans earth on instagram for weekly videos giving you guidance on ways that you can carry forward your regenerative contribution to life on earth including your own well-being we are an independent podcast and so giving us a rating a review and subscribing makes it easier for other people to find humans on Earth and participate in the regeneration revolution. Welcome back to Humans on Earth. I am really happy to bring you today a conversation with Kate Solisti. She's president of Kinship Enterprises, and she has been dedicated to nurturing animal and human understanding and wellness since 1992. Her passion and purpose are to give voice to all members of the animal kingdom so they can participate with human beings in improving their own health and well-being, as well as that of all species and the planet. As a facilitator of interspecies communication, Kate works with both wild animals and companion animals. She is a recognized expert in dog and cat care, behavioral counseling, nutrition, flower essence therapy, and energy healing. She is the author of six books and has been featured nationally and internationally on stage, radio, and television. You can find her website at katesolisti.com. That's K-A-T-E-S-O-L-I-S-T-I.com. I am really happy to have Kate here with us today. I discovered her serendipitously and have already had a consult with her for my dog, Stella, whom you may hear snoring in the background or walking behind me occasionally. (laughs) So I already know the deep extent and breadth of Kate's talents. And Kate, it is just so nice to get to talk with you today. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Helen. It's lovely to be with you here today. And with Stella, who's behind you snoring. The first thing that I would love to have you tell our listeners is how do you describe your process of communicating with animals? More and more people are being open now about their ability to do this. You are not the only person who's a professional in the field. So happily, it is 
a communication ability that is gaining more attention and more acceptance. Tell us how you do it. Well, thank you. I really feel that the ability to connect species to species is, again, it's a birthright. Native American people, indigenous people all over the world talk about the time where animals, plants, and humans had a shared language. And that shared language is the language of the heart and, in, and intuition. And it's interesting because I've, I've felt for so long that the heart is really the seat of this intuition, although, of course, in many traditions, it's the third eye, the ajna, which is connected to the pineal gland. And so there's a long history of the importance of that gland in this process. But I believe perhaps a, a way to, and again, we don't really have to differentiate, but because I feel this is such a heart-centered work, I believe that it really starts in the heart, and that's what activates the third eye, the intuition. The intuition is, I think, a muscle we have to exercise. We all have it. We just get out of practice using it. We use our, our minds too much because you know our minds are very dualistic, whereas our hearts and our intuition are not. So it is about developing and really exercising our own intuition, whether you get it your sense of, oh, a dear friend is, you know, I'm thinking about a dear friend and then she calls you, or you have a sense that something's wrong with an animal or a person you love. And in fact, you're right. Those are all your intuition communicating with you. So that's, that is where the process begins and develops is in that heart centered connection, followed by an activation of your intuition through the third eye, pineal gland, combination thereof. I love your emphasis on the fact that this is a birthright for us and that it's something anybody can learn to do. What was it like for you to realize that you had this ability and then develop it into your full-time work? I think some people would say you have a dream career spending your days talking with animals. It is it is a great dream and a privilege and an honor and I am so grateful that I have a developed intuition so that I can do this. It's interesting because my past, like I think so many children, uh, we come in very open, connected to plants and animals. You know, so many children remember that precious relationship with that dog, cat, horse, bird, bunny, turtle in their childhood that was so special. And I was like that. I came in very open. I was, an, I was a first child, so I was very verbal. And I would, of course, tell my mother and dad, especially, you know, about conversations I was having with the cat and the apple trees and the flowers. And that's cute when you're two, right? That's adorable. But as you keep talking about it and you keep telling them things, you know, eventually they start to go, okay, this kid has a really vivid imagination and they start to kind of get worried about it, right? And kids feel that. They pick that up too, because they're, of course, reading humans as well, the parents and all the people around them, depending again on how sensitive they are. You know, we talk about the birthright, but some people have a greater aptitude for it or a sensitivity to it than others, just like some people are fabulous at music and other people have to work harder at it, or wonderful at math and others of us have to work at it. Again, different skills and abilities come easier to some, to all, each of us, we all have our gifts. And, you know, this, I was very open and sensitive, which again is a bit of a double-edged sword, right? 
<laughs> so, um, because you can be, as they all told me I was, too sensitive. So as my parents, my mother especially, began to tell me this was my imagination, this wasn't real, I got, you know, very self-conscious, but I kept saying it because it was my my reality. And happily, my father, when I was three, gave me a beautiful orange tabby kitten, and it was love at first sight. And his name was Dusty. And Dusty said to me right off the bat, and when I say said, I mean, I received his thoughts. So we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit about that too, about how I received. But I received his thoughts and his feelings. And he said, you know, let's just you and I do this together and not share too much with them because it's, it's too much and we'll just do this together. So he and I had a glorious time just sitting in the suburban New Jersey garden and listening to flowers and sparrows and turtles and, and it was magical. And I remember coming home from kindergarten, I had after kindergarten and I would tell him about all the strange things the kids did and he'd listen. And um, one day in October, my, my first grade year, cause he said, you know, you're now in first grade and you really need to apply yourself about being with people. I said, okay. And he crawled into my bed in October and he curled up next to me as he always did and said, I love you very much. I'm very proud of you. And our work together is done. And I just fell asleep feeling loved and wonderful. But when I woke up, he was not on my bed. And I began to get a very, very bad feeling. And I went down and I said, Mom, where's Dusty? So that I haven't seen him. And I knew something was really wrong. And we ate breakfast and we pulled out of our quiet street onto the busy street. And she went, <gasps> and I said, what did you see? Because I knew what she saw. I said, she said, nothing, nothing. I didn't say anything. That went all the way to school. And I said, I won't get out of the car until you tell me what you saw. She said, I, I think I saw Dusty on the side of the road. And I knew she was right. Then I went in, into class and threw my head down on my desk and sobbed. And my best friend came up to me and said, what's the matter? And I was able to blurt out my cat. My cat is dead. And he said to me, it's just a cat. And I thought, oh, God. Oh, what am I doing with these people. So I got very sick. I got tonsillitis really badly. And I went to the hospital to have my tonsils yanked out back in the 60s. It was a really scary experience. But when I went under anesthesia, not really sure I wanted to stay in, in form, I felt lifted up by something familiar, someone familiar, and held close. And I kind of burrowed my face in, and it was fur. And it was dusty smell. And... He said, your work isn't done. You have much to do, and I'll always be here with you. And so are the, their animals. And I, you know, then I went deep under, got my tonsils yanked out. And when I came back out of that, my family was around, but I, I made a decision to shut it all down. I didn't know how I could stay open like this when, A, they didn't believe me. B, he was gone. It was just too painful. So by the time I was eight, I shut it all down. And I was really good at shutting it out of my consciousness, all about talking to the other, the plants and the birds, but I couldn't forget these very deep conversations he and I had. And then in my twenties, I went to therapy for the usual stuff with your parents and discovered a whole piece of me was missing. It was my feminine intuitive self that I had banished when I was eight. And my therapist said, I think you need to reintegrate that part of you. I said, probably right. So as I did, this inner child of mine was that intuitive part of me. And as I worked in therapy to make her feel safe and loved again, 
I started to hear. And what I heard, again, it was thought-to-thought communication, what I refer to as telepathy, from trees. And, of course, the feelings. I could get feelings as well. And so that's how it started to come back. And I was old enough and had been through enough to know I wasn't crazy, right? And because when sometimes when people have those experiences and they have no context for it, it's scary. But I wasn't scared. It felt like I was becoming whole again. And my connection to the trees was so beautiful and profound. And they were my teachers. So that that's how that all came back. And professionally, <laughs> how did I start doing this as a professional? Oh, that's so profound, Kate. And it, it reminds me of a huge topic, which, which we may or may not go into, but I, I really want to mark, which is that trauma is playing such a big role right now in humans closing themselves off from the natural world and from plants and animals. And having done some, some similar inter- self-integration work to yours, it's become so clear to me that if we're going to repair the human relationship to animals and plants and the earth, part of that has to be resolving our own trauma because it closes down these abilities. And I, I think your story is a really remarkable and touching example of one of the many ways that that can function. Well, thank you, Helen. I think I, think I shared it in a little bit more detail. Sometimes I say less and more. Because I feel that your listeners are going to have a lot of those those experiences in common. Yeah. Uh, because it does. It happens to so many children who come in very open. And I think kids more and more, right, are coming in open because we need them. We, and as parents, the last thing we want to do is shut them down and say, but mine did. This is, you know, this is your imagination. It's not real. What do your parents think about your work now? Well, my mother believes in it. My father doesn't. He never has. And, you know, he he respects my knowledge of nutrition for for animals because that's the only thing he'll talk to me about. (laughs) So, and I have three sisters and, and one of them totally believes in it. I think another kind of, and the third one, not so much. So I, I am definitely the black sheep in the family. And indeed there are some of the things that I do that are that are very deep and profound working with the nature spirits and animals who have passed on. That's a place that's really hard for them to go at all. They just have no dictionary for that. Okay. Thank you for sharing that story. I think, as you said, it is going to possibly be very evocative and wake up some old memories for some of our listeners, but also really be relatable for people who know that they have these sensitivities, but are not sure if they can trust them. Right. I really want to encourage people to trust it, to own it, to listen. And, you know, when I teach, I have an apprenticeship that's very, it's really an intro. It's very one-on-one, but it is about learning to trust yourself again and find out what's in the way of trusting. Because as you said, it's trauma. It's people telling you it's your imagination Oftentimes the loss of a beloved animal, like what happened to me, shuts it down. Even when you're not as aware of it as I was, and then I became in during therapy, just losing an animal you love is enough for people to say, I'm never going to open up that much again. That's a big thing that happens. And 
we need people to remember. The animals need us to remember. The earth needs us to remember. This is critical right now. Right. Well, and I'm thinking back to what your classmate said, it's just a cat. Some adult had taught him that, right? Children don't come into the world feeling dismissive. If you, I know you and I are both parents and if you spend time with a two-year-old, they are generally fascinated by nature. And in my experience, they usually take a nurturing and tender approach. It's when adults say just a cat, it's just a plant, doesn't matter, then that's what they learn. So this this part is very, very important at this, this conversation about what we're teaching one another. Absolutely. Yeah, this is this awareness of how open they are and they are little sponges. You know, we are all little sponges as children and we want to fit in. We want to be accepted. And so anything that makes our family look askance at us and go, mm, what's going on with this kid? We want to go, oh, no, I can't do that. They won't love me. They won't care for me. And so, yeah. And so, yes, as parents, the more we can encourage and work with them on loving and staying open like this to the natural world, even though, you know, eventually people may get, may make fun of them. There'll be others that will say, Oh, I, I thought that too. I, I heard that flower the other day, as you say, when they're little, you know, up to maybe second grade or so, right. They're, they're really usually quite open and excited playing with fairies and, you know, all of, all of these wonderful things that children do. So what's a typical session like for you? How do you actually do this? <laughs> okay, so the way I work, I mentioned telepathy earlier on. You know, there's different ways we receive, right? There, you know, and when people say, well, this is a lot of mumbo jumbo, I say, oh, really? When we can see something that's not physical, we have a word for it. It's called clairvoyant. We can see something that's going to happen or maybe did happen. When we hear something, but it's not auditory, it's not coming through our ears, we call it clairaudience. When we know something, we call it clairsentience. If it wasn't real, we wouldn't have names for them. These abilities, these, these extra senses that we've got. So the way that I work is I tune in, I tune into animals a lot now through their photographs. You know, when I was first starting out, I felt I needed to be with an animal in person. And I love that. But because I was able to broaden my ability to tune in through the photograph, I can speak to clients all over the country and world, which I do. And so what happens is I ask them to send me a picture of their animal, a good face picture, so I can really look at the animal's eyes. And then what happens is, again, I go into that heart space of connection. I know the animal. I have the permission because the person has asked me to do this, which is critical. And uh, and, and I tune in again from my heart and then I allow to come what comes. And that was something that I did early on. I trusted it. I didn't second guess it. I said, okay, I'm just going to let this come through. Come what may. I'm not going to judge it. I'm not going to try and make sense of it. I'm going to let it come through. So that's basically what I still do is I allow the animals thoughts. I don't hear voices. So I would not call myself clairaudient. I would call myself clairvoyant and meaning I can see, I can read an animal's, I can read an animal's body some similarly to what a medical intuitive does, a scan. Again, if the animal wants me to do that and wants me to see, uh, because I don't believe in going.
going somewhere I'm not invited. So that's really important. I will only share what the animal and their guides, because I learned actually from a French veterinarian many, many years ago, the importance of checking in with the animal's guides to be sure you're getting the whole picture. It's because an animal say, oh, yes, I could eat steak all day long. <laughs> and the, the guides will say, well, that's not really what she should be eating all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's just her tongue talking, not the whole body. Right. <laughs> so two things I hear you saying, well, I mean, three, because the part about the guides is really fascinating and I, I can relate to that as well. One is you go into a receptive mode, it sounds like, where your intellectual judging faculty is a little bit turned down and you really kind of become a receiver, a receptacle, a listener. And two, some animals may not want to share with you or let you scan them. I think that's fascinating. And then three, checking with the animal's guides is important. That's really interesting. In fact, I'd love to hear more about who do you think the animal's guides are because I'm accustomed to giving a lot of attention to the guides available for people. But I have to admit, I haven't given a lot of attention to the guides who might be present for animals. Well, I learned that again through this, uh, you know, many, many years ago. Um, and I just started asking, you know, may I, may I connect with your guides? And the animals always say yes, because they, they're happy to have the extra input. And so is the human. And that's especially important if there's a medical issue, right, where the animal is having a, a physical problem, it, I think it's it's very valuable to double check with the guides and be sure that we're on the right track. It's rare that an animal does not want to give me, me for their person as much information as possible. It's been, it's happened hardly, it has happened a couple of times. Okay, we were talking about when um, some sometimes an animal does not wish me to scan them or to answer me. There's only been a couple of times. And one time was fascinating because I was working with, I came to work in person with a horse. And as we were walking in the barn, her person said, I've had it. I've done everything I know what to do with this horse and there's nothing more I can do. And I went, oh, great. So I tuned into the horse and she was like, why should I say anything? She said, there's nothing more that I, that she's going to do for me. So I turned to the person and I said, um, she's very concerned that you, you know, you said to me that you're, you're done and are you really done? And she said, well, no, I need to know what she needs and then we can move forward. I said, okay. And the horse, the horse heard her say that. And the, and the horse still was a little bit skeptical. So I asked the horse, may I connect with your guides and talk with them about the situation that you're experiencing? And she gave me permission. And so the guide started to share what was going on with this injury. And very, very soon after she started to share. So it ended up moving. But again, the importance of the human and animal bond and what we say and think, our animals are picking up all of that. So if we have this fatalistic attitude or we're sure that something's gonna happen that, that may or may not, the animal can just go, well, what should I say? I mean, it's not, she's not going to listen. So that was one time when that happened and we were able to get past it. Mm. Wow. That, that is really intriguing. And it makes perfect sense to me. 
what's your sense of who the animal's guides are? Well, you know, I don't see usually, I don't get a clairvoyant picture of them. I, I have a sense of their energy. So I'm not, I'm not, you know, you know, saying that, you know, a, a particular dog has a wolf guide and a German shepherd guide and a poodle guide <laughs> or an angelic being. I, I honestly don't have a sense of what they look like as opposed to their energies and their communication that comes through is usually extremely helpful. So perhaps, you know, again, so much of this is us trying to figure things out that may be unfigureoutable. <laughs> so maybe it's really the higher self or the group soul of canines or, or felines or horses, equines, um, or it doesn't matter. As long as we're getting helpful guidance and information, I'm good with that. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel though, as we're talking about this, if you start asking these guides who they are, I think they'll tell you. <laughs> I mean, you haven't felt the need to, which I completely understand, but I bet that information is available to you. And it probably is something like the group soul, the higher self. I think what I'm really curious about is, are there, are there ascended master beings who are supporting animals? So yes, <laughs> we have I to know. explore that. I do know that. I have experienced some of them in some very advanced animals who are also master teachers that I've had the privilege of working with. So that's a very profound thing, as well as angelic beings who are, have incarnated into animal form. Mm -hmm. So there's, and, and the angelic realm, of course, is way connected to all the plant kingdom. You know, we talk about fairies and in, in Sanskrit and in, in Hindu tradition, they're called devas, the little fairies around plants and trees, but deva is just a word for angel. So, and I've had a great privilege of, of working with the angelic presence of individual plants and trees, as well as a forest or a meadow. And then, of course, the, the overlighting deva of all the lodgepole pines. So all of this is available to us. And as science evolves, we're, you know, we're, we're now learning how the trees communicate underground through with the fungus. You know, there's this incredible link of the fungus as helping create communication between not only the trees of same species, but all the all the, the bushes and the and the trees of all these other species and how how they help each other. And right. science is finally catching up, which is really exciting. Sharing nutrients, right? I mean, to me, that is so right. profound as we realize that we really got it wrong in the 19th and 20th centuries when we assumed that competition is the main story of what goes on in the natural world. Now we're discovering that trees are not only sharing nutrients, as far as I understand, with trees of the same species, but they appear to be sharing nutrients with plants of other species. It's beautiful. That is really profound. It is. It's, it's profound. And of course, I'm reading a book that I just, oh God, I just love it. It's called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kemmerer. It's, there's a middle name. Wow. She is a Potawatomi and she's a biologist and a biology teacher with these amazing, you know, obvious, beautiful connections to the, the natural world. And she shares it so brilliantly in her book about the indigenous, yes. indigenous relationships and reciprocity that we completely are, you yeah. know, we've forgotten. It was part of, it was part of every culture. We all go back to a nature-based culture, whether we are from Norway yes. or, or uh, Indonesia or South Africa or 
Ireland, it doesn't matter. We all go back. We all have that in our ancestry and we just have to remember and how it's so important. Yes, yes. Kimmerer is a favorite author of mine for anyone who's listening and doesn't know the book. She is Robin Wall Kimmerer, a botanist in the State University of New York system and her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, and her essays, um, which are published online in various places, are artful and profound and are really doing a tremendous amount to weave indigenous wisdom together with contemporary science. Oh, you said that beautifully. That's it. Exactly. Perfect. <laughs> I really love her work. A question that I would like to ask you now is what are animals telling you if this is something that you discuss with them about the work that we humans need to do now of restoring and regenerating the planet ecosystems, various species, and certainly the human nature relationship. You know, it looks to me like that will be one of the primary things we focus on in the rest of this century, and the potential outcomes are extremely beautiful. I'm curious whether animals talk to you about this and I'd also love to hear you talk about your time with the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust in Kenya, because it's a place you and I have both been very privileged to visit. I only once and, and you more than that. So when you talk with animals who are wild, are they offering insights about this or are domesticated animals offering insights about what needs to happen with regenerating the planet and the human nature relationship? Oh, that's a, that's a beautiful question. The companion animals are mostly focused on their relationship with their people that they love. And of course, there's many lessons taking place there, many gifts. Very often, the animals are manifesting an issue that the human being has uh, and mirroring, you know, so there's a lot of that. And the beauty of that is, is that oftentimes we put off caring for ourselves. And what happens is when our animal is manifesting a physical problem, and we see the relationship to us kind of avoiding something, we're like, oh, we'll do that because it's I need to do this for my beloved. So there's there's more of that personal teaching, mirroring, helping, but it is all still the anchor, the foundation is connection. So the wild ones have a much different relationship to us, as you know. And so they don't, they're not as invested in our, you know, our personal growth. However, if I, if I say that there's, there's a theme that underlies all their different lessons, because in talking with gorillas, in talking with elephants, in talking with bees, they all have a special way of communicating to us through their experience that is relevant to some of us, many of us, sometimes all of us. And, but, or, and the foundation is that when we remember our connection, we become aware, we shift our frequency and vibration. Once we do that and we realize that we truly are one, we are one family, one big expression of divine energy. Once we get that and we begin to collaborate with nature and cooperate with nature, they keep telling us all things can be solved because we've made a mess out of disconnection and separation. I will share an interesting thing. The seals 
spoke about, which was plastic. Because, of course, you know, it's inundating the seas. And they said plastic, they didn't call it that, but, you know, that's what they were talking about. <laughs> that substance, that, that object, yeah. is incomplete. Because everything in nature has a cycle. It is born, it blossoms, or it grows, and then it, then it decays and, and dies and breaks down. But harmlessly. Yeah. And, and everything returns to that cycle. But we have created this substance that doesn't complete. It's an incomplete creation. And so they said, it is up to us to figure out how to change that, to help it come to completion. But of course, what's fascinating to me is there are biologists and chemical engineers and all kinds of fascinating humans who are finding ways, working with bacteria and enzymes and even worms, to break down plastics. and But obviously, we have to stop creating all this mess, which is, again, that gets back to consciousness and clarity, that you can't do that stuff if you are conscious and aware, because you see the ramifications of being part of that system. So as I say, there's they have many different suggestions and ways for us to become more connected. There's some beautiful meditations I've received, one of the most profound from the Gorilla Council, about our heart, our throat, our third eye, and our mind, and how we help those connect and expand. So they have that, they have that inner wisdom, and it is really wisdom. Knowledge is something of the brain and mind. Wisdom is something completely different, and I've learned that. Wisdom comes from the heart, and it is inclusive. Knowledge can be very this or that, right? And that's what I love about, about braiding sweetgrass is, is, is all that she speaks about is all about the ramifications, how everything is connected as it goes out. And of course, the law of the Haudenosaunee, uh, the Iroquois Confederacy, is we must consider in our every deliberation seven generations hence. That would be awesome yeah. if we could even think of one generation hence, right? Right. Well, it's that cyclical thinking, and I am really entranced by that message from the seals about plastic, because that's quite a profound insight, which (laughs) in a certain way is obvious. We're aware of that problem with plastic, but in another way, it's an incredibly subtle insight that we've totally missed because we've been producing this substance for roughly a hundred years and we've known about the problems it causes for at least 30 to 60 years and we've we've missed what the seals pointed out that the real problem with plastic is it has an incomplete life cycle and the way to fix that or anything is to create for it a life cycle that functions completely incompatibility with how life on this planet really works. That's beautifully summarized. That's exactly right. That if we looked at everything we create with that sense of how, how, how it is part of the natural way of things, the natural cycles of things, so many things would be created with a very different mindset and a very different, yeah. I mean, we talk about hemp in this country and how hemp is this incredible plant you know, what wisdom that plant has and everything it can do. You can, we can use every part of it and it grows really quickly. It is the most generous of plants and they're all generous, but that one, and we, we, we stopped producing hemp and made it 
this evil being so that we could produce plastics because they were oil-based. We made a choice. We allowed other people to make those choices for us. And, and if, as the animals say, we were still connected, conscious and aware, we would have said, no, this, this industry that we call the oil industry is a horrible, destructive thing. You know, this is not, this is not part of how the natural world works, of which we are a part. This is something that is wrong. It is out of balance. It is koyaanisqatsi. Uh, that's a Hopi term for life out of balance. And uh, so we would have stuck with hemp. <laughs> right. Well, and that's our task now is to reassess all of those decisions and learn to make them in a completely new way. So what was it like working with the elephants or visiting the elephants at the Sheldrake Trust? I'll mention for our listeners, this is a wild elephant rehabilitation center, particularly as far as I understand, it's focused on newborn or, you know, young orphaned elephants. It's in Nairobi. And I had the amazing privilege to spend really just about an hour there last spring because I was visiting a family member in Kenya and to get up close to the baby elephants I mean, I don't even know how to describe what incredible joy it was to watch them, to get to put a hand on <laughs> on one a little bit, just to, to see their amazing gorgeousness of baby elephant. <laughs> but tell us about, about your experience there. Oh, golly. Yeah, absolutely. The sense of joy and sweetness. And they are all per different personalities, just like children. You know, when they come down, they bring them down. So everyone gathers around this lovely little elephant playground that has, you know, mud holes and dirt. And in Kenya, the dirt is this rich red, like, um, you know, like a clay pot, that wonderful orange red. And they love nothing more than to roll in the mud and squirt each other and, and you know, climb on each other. And they're just like little kids in a playground. And it is all joy. And tuning into them, you have the wonderful opportunity to, to, to hear their thoughts and to see or feel, again, all these very distinct personalities. And the Sheldrick Trust was uh, created originally by Dame Daphne Sheldrick in, in memory of her husband, who was a game warden in the 70s, but he was a conservationist. He was ahead of his time and helped create Sabo National Park, which is a critical piece. Um, but she grew it. Uh, and they, again, as, as, as you said, Helen, they are now called in from all over Kenya and even Tanzania when there's an orphaned elephant or an injured elephant. They now support veterinarian units that go out and see to giraffes, to see to any animal that has been injured uh, or, or, or poached and, and injured um, or anybody who has gotten too close to humans and it's gotten dangerous for the human beings. And they educate so it's this incredible full program to bring in human beings into the connection because sadly, a lot of the native people um, have lost a lot of their connection due to many different factors. And so it is, again, restoring that love and connection. But when you see the keepers, so they are these young men, they're not all young, these men who wear these green kind of lab coats and Hats. And the reason they do all look alike in terms of their dress and they, is because they don't want the elephants, the babies, to bond with any one person. Dame Daphne learned that the hard way, that this baby elephant bonded to her. And when she had to go away, 
the baby elephant died because he'd already lost his mom, his, his elephant mom. So these beautiful beings, these keepers, sleep with the elephants. They have a bunk above the, the little uh, stall that the babies are in. But they switch around so that the, the elephants love the keepers, the group, but they don't just bond with one. And that's why they wear the green coats. But these men are so generous, so loving and kind, and they feed them and they take them out on these walks into the wilderness. And the beauty of this is the elephants choose when it's time for them to leave and join the wild herd. And so it's all on what is in the elephant's best, highest and best, but also the elephants know better than we do, which I just love. That's what they're teaching everybody. They know best, not us. <laughs> I noticed too from reading their newsletters that they release them in stages from the center in Nairobi out into a wild land where they are still with the people and and they can kind of experience a transition. And that seems really brilliant for animals who are as intelligent as elephants and who are so young to not make it an abrupt release, but a staged release. It has to be. And those are called the reintegration units. And there's, a, there's three, maybe four, in different areas of Kenya. And I got to go to one. And you get to see how the elephants have formed their bonds. And there was a, there were two, it's usually around age nine that they decide, okay, I'm ready. You know, I'm ready to go. But they can go out and, and connect to the wild herds, many of whom are elephants who've grown up, you know, who were saved at the trust and have gone back to the wild. And they know that what these babies' transitions are like. So sometimes the babies will spend a little time, the youngsters, because they're not babies, the youngsters will spend time with the wild ones. And then they'll be like, oh, I want to go home and get a bottle. <laughs> this has been fun, but I need my bottle. And they'll come back and it's all okay. They're all welcome back. And then some of the older ones may adopt, if you will, some of the older ones that are still in the program may adopt a younger one. And then the keepers say, well, they're, they get to stay longer because they, they're not, they don't want to leave until this little one is ready. So they can stay as long as they need to and come and go, which is what some of the other animals they rescued, zebras and the eland and a little water buffalo, you know, that we met when we were there. So it's just the most beautiful, loving collaboration between humans and animals. And we have these, we can follow these examples. And I think they've done a lot of, you know, support for other rescue organizations in different countries in Africa because they kind of, you know, Dame Daphne kind of wrote the book. She figured out the formula for baby elephants. And that was a trial right. and error. And do you know what it is, Helen? Do you know what the, the baby formula is? You know, I read her book last spring, but I can't remember now. It's human baby formula. Right. Now that's right. pretty extraordinary, right? Because she tried, yeah. you know, adding coconut milk and cow's milk and goat's milk. And because you can't, you know, nobody could figure out what was in mother elephant milk. And it took her quite a while, but the best thing for them is human baby. Yeah, she was incredibly perseverant. I was amazed by her story of how many baby elephants they lost and the emotional fortitude that she and her colleagues had to continue, even though they were facing such frequent heartbreak. She was really a pioneer. And now their, they, their success rate is huge. You know, they don't lose very many babies and they really have it down. And they, that's why I say they're, they're real role models for the 
the rest of the African countries dealing with orphan baby elephants and returning them to the wild. And it's just, it's, it's just a joy. <laughs> yeah, they are a beautiful model of what is possible between humans and animals in a, a really caring setting where there's, there's a lot of listening going on and a lot of altruism. Absolutely. Oh, always happy to talk about it. That was a dream of mine to go to the trust at some point. And then when I was, when I was contacted by this gal who was arranging trips and asked me to be an animal communicator and bring my clients and friends on the trip, I burst into tears. So I was so grateful. And I got to go to Africa three times. What a gift. Twice to Kenya and the Sheldon Trust and, you know, mostly on an elephant trip. And then once to Mozambique to swim with the dolphins and then to South Africa for the remainder of that trip. And wow, what a privilege to be yeah. in those lands. Those lands are magical. Yeah, they really are. The earth speaks really to us are. and I, you can yeah. feel it in those places that are still so wild, which is wonderful. It's Africa is quite extraordinary. And I think for for people from other continents to be able to visit there and get these glimpses of these animals that for us are kind of mythic in their proportions. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary way to experience life on planet earth. It is, it, it is, it's such a gift if we can do that. But of course, you know, we also have the gift of animals in our own yards and parks and they're just, you know, they, we're used to them, so they don't seem as interesting sometimes, but they are still full of that connection. And there's so much we can learn just from observing them and spending time with them. And, uh, and of course, the plants, so much to teach us. Right. And no, I absolutely agree that the animals and plants in your place are the ones that are yours to connect with and you know, if we have an extraordinary opportunity to travel somewhere very far away and encounter animals we normally wouldn't, that that is a tremendous privilege. But the animals and plants in our place are the ones we should pay the most attention to. Absolutely. We can so journey into connection with them. You know, it's, it's, it's the same journey and it's the same level of, you know, again, starting with your heart and allowing your that connection to develop and expand and to keep practicing with it. Just keep doing it. <laughs> there's, there's no, it's not magic. It's just practice. Like you would practice for a marathon. You'd have to right. work your muscles. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. Do you feel like you would like to bring in a message from any animals today? Let's see. I am standing here at, at my computer looking out on an amazing snow-covered forest. Uh, we had almost three feet of snow yesterday in Colorado, and uh, I have a beautiful hairy woodpecker climbing up the pine tree, and squirrels, and little nuthatches, and let's see if anyone from my little area here... <laughs> Wild turkeys. I have a lot of those that come to visit and they, they walk along my banister on my deck and they come to the window and they're like, excuse me, where's the bird seed? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you guys wonderful. eat everything in sight. Really? <laughs> anyway, they're hilarious, but they have the most beautiful 
vocalizing with one another. You hear this beautiful cooing and brrring and when you just listen to them and you know, get in tips with each other, you know, they'll snap at each other and get out of the way, that was mine. But this lovely sound when the babies come through. So it's the wild turkeys that have a message for us today. Yeah, okay. I was privileged once. We have some in Pennsylvania, but I lived in a rural place in upstate New York. And I was privileged once to see a mother with her string of chicks. And that was a really neat experience and, and to hear the chicks. So it's so dear. Oh, and of course, to see the big males, you know, do their beautiful, you know, and they're related to peacocks. I don't know if everybody knows that. But, you know, so when they go and they, they get their heads get they get blue, and then they get red and, and, and they don't change colors. But when they're in mating season, they're they're, the skin gets this, they're amazing. And then the tails, they'll actually tremble their tails to impress the ladies. And the ladies act very nonchalant, like, oh, please. Oh, please. <laughs> it's hilarious. Okay, so the wild turkeys have a, have a message. All right. Thank you for listening when we, when we decided that we would answer your request for we are all about each other. We have our family groups that are very intricate. There is a, what you would refer to as hierarchy, but we respect one another's gifts. We know that some of us in our family group need a little more independence. And those turkeys need to wander a little further. They need to maybe stay up in a higher tree they need their independence and we respect that, but we're always keeping an ear open. We're always listening to see if they need our help. For we work together. When there is a predator, if we are aware and we can do something about it, we will help. We will help to try and scare away that predator. But then if we must be a gift so the predator must can live, then we will graciously give ourselves to be a gift for that predator. We recognize that this is part of the cycle that we are an intricate and important part of. We are very blessed because we have a size that does allow us some protection. We have beautiful feathers and our feathers are very important to us, both for warmth, but also expression, also in the relationship to the sun and the rain and the snow. And we are resourceful. We are very good at finding what we need, but we take what we need, and we always leave something behind. We came to you today to remind you of the importance of your family connection, whether it is a family you were born into or that you've created, because some of us have adopted chicks that did not belong to us. So sometimes we fit in different communities, as you do, but we are there to bring out the strengths of each one of us, to help one another, to care for one another, and sometimes to go our own way. But we go our own way knowing that we have the love of our community always there beneath our wings. This is something that is so important to us, and we know that every being who is part of a community pack, a herd, a flock, feels this way, that we need each other. And human beings, you are part of our flock. You are part 
of our family, just as you are family to one another. Remember, remember. Thank you, Kate. I'm so intrigued by their commentary on cooperative interrelationship, I guess, is how I would summarize that, because it does seem like any animal species that lives in families or larger groups, packs, they really have a lot to teach people about including everyone, (laughs) not discriminating for the most part, but really being inclusive and collaborative. And it it sounds like that's kind of what the turkeys were speaking to. Yeah, they have their own way. And, and it's it's so fascinating because as I speak that, I, in my mind, am seeing them do these things. I'm seeing the one decide to go right up in the high tree, but I can feel the mother turkeys down below just kind of keeping a check on him. And, you know, I I can feel that energy as they as they communicate through me, which is, again, that's that's what you can develop is not only, you know, it's not just these words or sentences that are popping into my head, it's whole sense of that community. And it is true, absolutely, Helen, that animals who live in packs and herds are the ultimate team players, right? Where every every person in the herd, every every being in the herd or the pack has their role to play, which plays to their strengths, and then they compensate for each other's weaknesses so that they're working together for the good of the whole. That's the important piece. It's about the good of the whole. The individual's very important. Their their gifts, their ways to express themselves, all of that adds to the community, which we see in cultures in Africa and in Australia and in Native American cultures. We have this. We can, all we have to do is remember. What is it? Ubuntu? Is that the is that the word Ubuntu? Mm-hmm. Ubuntu, the Swahili word for I exist because of my relationship with you, or I exist in relationship with you. Beautiful. And that's that's true of all of us, whether we're aware of it or not, right? We are interconnected. The trouble is, is that a lot of people don't think they are. They forgot. It's the big forget. Yeah. Well, and as you and I have talked about today, one of the exciting things is not only that work like yours is becoming more seen and accepted, but that our conventional ways of generating knowledge, the sciences are now seeming to come up with finding after finding about interconnectivity and interdependence, mutualism, symbiosis, interrelationship. So I think it's a really exciting time in that respect. That actually opens the way perfectly to the last question that I would love to ask you, which is, what gets you really excited and hopeful as you think about what might be next in the human nature relationship, or feel free to just address the human animal relationship if you prefer. It seems like there actually is a lot of reason to be very excited, very passionate, very optimistic right now. So I'd just like to hear what's your experience or vision of that? My vision is a vision of remembering that more and more people who are looking for solutions, whether they're scientists or anthropologists or botanists or biologists, whatever, whoever they are, that they are beginning to really shift into seeing more, feeling more connection. I mean, of course, Jane Goodall was 
critical in that because she wasn't trained not to feel and see the relationships. It is about relationship. And so I, I am feeling more optimistic about the future. Yes, we're in an era of, of huge dichotomies. And some days, like all of us, I feel down and like, you know, how can, how can people be making those choices? But then there's beautiful things happening around the world that, that lift me. And, and I would say what helps me the most is that I read, I learn, and I, I learn about these things that are happening, whether again, it's, it's under the sea, it's uh, high in the mountains, uh, it's, it's collaboration, cooperation, local people reconnecting. So I see perhaps really this connection is going to take place on the ground, meaning biologists and scientists coming to local communities and saying, do you realize there's a treasure here that is so special, whether it is in Nepal and it's the snow leopards or it's the elephants or it's a small fish, but that as we connect our communities to the animals of our place, as you so beautifully put, that's where all this builds from is that heart connection to caring about a place, a group of plants in a place, animals in a place, all of the beings in that place, the water, how important that water system is. I think that too, people having been stuck at home and getting out of the human rat race, it's not the rats, it's a human race, have been able to step back and go, what's really important here? And what do I want for my children who I've been spending a lot of time with? <laughs> what do I want for them? It's not just about money. So I'm grateful that there is this movement towards sustainability. And I and again, I love what Robin Wall says. It's about reciprocity. If we take, we give back. And the more we can learn that with each other, the more healing takes place, the more connection takes place, the more our community, our flock, expands to encompass these other flocks and packs. And that's what I see as we expand from this little, you know, this local effort into seeing those interconnectedness. And as that awareness happens, those solutions that the animals talked about, like finding a way to help plastic complete itself, will show up because we've expanded our awareness. I do, I do believe that very deeply, that the answers, all of these things we've created come from when we've opened our minds and our beings to other possibilities. Every invention we've ever made comes from that place. We're very creative. Now we have to bring the heart together with the mind, and that's the that's the gift and work to be done. Does that answer your question? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Thank you. That's really beautiful, and I encourage everyone who's listening to look for your own way of the heart listening, the heart-based intuitive discernment that Kate just talked about, and the creative solutions that bring humanity back into not only a sustainable, but a healed and healing and regenerative relationship with all beings in the natural world. Thank you so much, Kate, for speaking to that so beautifully. You can find Kate at katesolisti.com. Thank you so much, Helen. It was so much fun being with you and talking with you today.
Thank you for listening to Humans and Earth. Please share this episode to broaden engagement in the regeneration our world needs. You'll find social media links in the show notes. To explore our other offerings, visit www.humansandearth.com. Have you read Humans and Earth's ebook on informed optimism? It's called A Guide to Informed Optimism Things to Know and Explore to Feel Hopeful About the Human Future with Earth. It's time to be aware that although our problems are serious, healing solutions are already in place. If you hear only the bad news, you might feel hopeless. But once you realize that all around the planet, people are changing the human presence from damaging to restorative, you can feel inspired instead. This is informed optimism. Being alert to the need for Earth's restoration and becoming excited about how much progress we're already making while discovering how you can participate. Explore a guide to informed optimism things to know and explore to feel hopeful about the human future with Earth, to learn about eight global movements that are restoring the human-Earth relationship, regenerating Earth's systems, and creating jobs and well-being for people. Eight initiatives with the potential to create enormous healing for people and planet. Regenerative food production, renewable energy, renewable and regenerative manufacturing, regenerative land care, natural wellness approaches, communication with Earth's beings, and more. Informed optimism inquiry questions throughout the ebook help you consider how you feel as you learn about restorative solutions, how you would like to see them advance, and how you are attracted to participate. Find informed optimism at www.humansandearth.com slash courses. It's only $7.